Welcome to Interdisciplinary. I'm Cal Cates, and I am sadly without Kathy Ryan this week. She has many life, exciting life things happening that made her unable to be with us this week, but uh, we will be glad to be with her again next week. This is Healwell's healthcare podcast about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science, we love meaningful dissent, and we love to support our fellow humans in making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Thanks for joining us for another rousing conversation with a smart, compassionate, fancy pants caregiver. Uh, We have our first winner in the season three online review contest. So Jessica BD, thank you so much. Are you guys ready? This is a great review. We're going to actually maybe hire Jessica to do a workshop on how to write a review. She says, powerful, perspective, and punny. I found massage therapy without borders shortly after the pandemic started, and it kept me company and alert during work and long drives, so I followed it through its transition to interdisciplinary. The episodes never disappoint. As an American and a fan of Canada, I appreciate the viewpoints of the hosts and guests, and the information I take away can be generalized to life outside of my work as a massage therapist. I find myself excitedly talking about its content with others, as some of it I have never heard before. This show has deepened my proclivity for puns, broadened my horizons, and increased my desire to do better by my fellow humans. Thank you, Cal, Kathy, and the Healwell team. So, Jessica BD, the only trick is that we don't actually know who you are. So, when you hear this and you pull over your car so that you don't wreck it, um, send us an email at podcast at healwell.org and let us know which of our incredible prizes you would like to be set up with. A mug, a t-shirt, a 30-minute no-holds-barred conversation with Cal and Kathy, or a 30-minute chat with the authors of Handsprings Oncology Massage and Integrative Approach to Cancer Care that Rebecca Sturgeon and Janet Penny, those authors, have offered to do for an individual, or they'll even get on the on the Zooms with you and the other people in your massage practice or your clinic. So uh, let us know which of those you'd like, Jessica BD, and thanks for uh, listening and for your loyalty through the transition even. And the rest of you folks, make sure to go and like and share and tell all the world while why you're listening. Um, and remember that if you leave us a review online and we read it on the episode for the rest of season three, we're running this contest. So get out there and tell people why you're listening. So you guys ready for this week's pun? I figured in honor of our guest today, we'll do a, a nursely pun. One nurse says to the other one at shift change, how's the guy who swallowed all those quarters? The other nurse shakes her head. No change. Without further ado, I am very excited to welcome our guest, Anna Valdez, uh, who is a nurse among many, many other things. So I will um, let Anna tell us uh, about herself and why she's so fancy. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I just want to say, wow, that prize is really awesome. Being able to talk with the authors, that's cool. Um, So a little bit about myself. I am a registered nurse. I've been a nurse for 30 years. I spent approximately the first 20 years of my career bedside or stretcher side providing direct patient care in emergency settings. That's my background is emergency nursing and critical care, um, both in the hospital and outside of the hospital in EMS. And for a little over 10 years now, I've been teaching um, in academic settings. So I'm currently a professor and chair of nursing. um, And 
spend a lot of my time um, focused on education, but also as an activist. And I'm an editor. I'm editor-in-chief for teaching and learning and nursing as well. Wow. So when do you pee? <laughs> well, nurses, nurses have very good uh, trained bladders. Oh, so, that's excellent. So I make quick breaks to go pee, but I definitely stay very busy. I do a lot. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, and I, you know, there are so many things about, I mean, we found you out in the Twitterverse and uh, there's so many things about what you do and how you bring things together that make you such an interesting guest and certainly such a valuable provider and educator in the world. Uh, I think the way we found you, I want to make sure that we explore this as much as you feel like uh, you want to, that you are a nurse who lives and works with an invisible disability. And um, I don't even know where to start in terms of, tell us what, what that's like, what we should know, what are we missing? Absolutely. And I appreciate that you guys found me related to disability posts, um, which is sort of interesting because I have had lupus, which is um, the primary cause of my disability. I have several autoimmune disorders, but lupus is the big one. And I've had lupus now for almost for about 20 years, but I, I really didn't share it publicly until about the last eight years. Um, and that was in large part because I was afraid for other nurses and caregivers to know that I had a disabling disease because I was afraid it would prevent me from having opportunities. It would, um, you know, have people judge me. Um, nursing, unfortunately, has a lot of ableism in it. And it's, it's kind of like you have to be a super person and be able to do it all or you don't have value. So um, about 20 years ago, while I was working full time in the emergency department, I started having a bunch of issues that I couldn't understand. Headaches, um, weakness in my arms, pain in my joints, fevers. Um, and it took me about five years. And I, I think this is another issue in healthcare as in general. I'm overweight. And um, for about the first five years, I had doctors tell me that I was just fat and I needed to lose weight. So I went undiagnosed and untreated and really suffering for about five years before I finally got diagnosed. Um, and then I really kept it a secret. Um, my best friend who worked in the emergency department with me knew, but otherwise I really didn't tell other people because I, I truly was afraid that I'd be judged, you know, especially in the emergency department where it's heavy duty work, right? Um, and and I was still very young in my career. I was 30 years old when I got diagnosed. So, I, you know, I was looking at opportunities ahead of me. Um, and it is because of those early experiences of not being able to be authentic and not being able to talk to people about my real experience that make me speak out now because I realize um, that there are a lot of nurses out there who have disabilities, especially invisible disabilities are, you know, they're not really invisible. You can see them if you're looking and you know what to look for, right? Yeah. Um, that is something that I was reminded by a good friend of mine, Dr. Ravelis, this morning that that, you know, even when we say invisible diseases or invisible disabilities, there are things that people know. Like my best friend, when we worked in the emergency department, um, working 12-hour shifts was really hard as um, somebody with lupus. And she could tell when I started to be in a lot of pain just because maybe I'd rub my leg 
or, or whatever, but most other people couldn't. And so the perception is that I don't work as hard or as fast as other people um, or that, you know, I'm sick more than other people. I, I got reprimanded a lot for being sick. And oftentimes the reason I was sick is because I was immunocompromised and then exposed to infections in the emergency department and got sick. So ultimately I had to stop working in the emergency department, which was really hard for me. Um, I love being an emergency nurse. I was really good at it and I didn't want to stop, but I had to. And, and because I was young around 30 years old when I got diagnosed, I recognized then that I had to get more education because I knew I wasn't gonna be able to be stretcher side forever. And so I went straight through, I was an associate degree in nursing graduate. I went straight from my bachelor's to my PhD. Took me about uh, probably seven years of straight education wow. so that I would be prepared um, at 38, I had my PhD, so I'd be prepared to be able to do other things. And I'm really grateful I did that because while there are still challenges being disabled, it's um, it's easier in education than it is in practice. Yeah, I bet. Now, when you um, when you said that, you know, you, you had to, do you feel like that was the result of the culture or do you really feel like you weren't able to be a, a, an effective emergency nurse? Um, it was both. Uh, you know, the culture, I was getting reprimanded when I got sick. And ultimately, that was going to be problematic for me. And there was nothing I could do about it. I didn't have control over when I got sick. Lupus is unpredictable. Um, but the other part is, you know, working 12-hour shifts, I think even for aging nurses, is very, very difficult. Um, there's a lot of evidence that says that it is more dangerous for nurses to work 12-hour shifts, both for patients and for the nurses. But we we choose not to implement that evidence base Um and that was just not possible for me. However, if there had been opportunities for me to work four or eight hour shifts yeah. um, or to, you know, to take patients who weren't really highly contagious, I think that there would be opportunities for me to continue. Um, but those opportunities are pretty rare in nursing. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, you know, I mean, I think about your role as an educator, and I think um, one of the other nurses that we follow on uh, in the med Twitter universe is Nurse Kelsey. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but um, she posted something just recently about, we don't have a nursing shortage. We have a shortage of facilities that value nursing and want to pay nurses. The nurses are out there. They're just doing something else where they feel appreciated and valued. And I wonder, you know, I, 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 I know in looking at your profile in various places where you're involved that um, equity and access and um, intersectionality are things that you're very interested in. And I think about this four or eight hour shift and how it really wouldn't be that difficult to logistically do it. But the shifting of the mindset in our, in our imaginary meritocracy, it, that's a really big uphill. And I wonder if, I guess not even if, I don't wonder if you're definitely doing this, how do you bake this into teaching new nurses? I think that's a great question. About eight years ago, I really came forward with talking about my disability. And I think about five years ago, I felt much more empowered to be able to share what I, I really think and what I believe so that I could help shape the future nurses. So I, I embed a lot of activism, including ableism and disability into my training. Mm -hmm. um, but I also 
I also disclose my own experiences because I think it's hard for people, whether they're, you know, nursing students or working nurses, even physicians, to really understand the impact of illness um, when you haven't experienced it. And I think that stories are really powerful, being able to hear stories. And so I'm actually quite vulnerable with my students and will give them a lot of details about what it's like to live with an invisible illness um, and, and what I experience, um, in part because I'm a good nurse. I, I love my patients. I care deeply about them. I believe them when they tell me what's going on. And what I experience, I never would have been able to visualize. If my patient were telling me that, I, I would question it because they look fine. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think it's really important for nursing students to hear stories um, and to understand um, people's experiences. So I do try to weave my activism into my teaching. Yeah. And how, how is that received? Um, I guess, I, I, how is it received by students and how is it received by administration? Yeah, those are two different um, responses for sure. Um, my experience is that the students really value it. Um, there are always, you know, I am an activist, so I don't talk just about disability. Um, health equity is very important to me. Anti-racism is very important to me. Anti-oppression. And so I weave all of those into my education. There is always a, a student or two who feels that I'm too left-leaning <laughs> and that it's not an equal share. But as a teacher, I don't have to give an equal share. I can give what it is I believe is um, most important. But overwhelmingly, the students really appreciate it and it facilitates great discussions. And I'll often have students who will come to me and say, you know what, I have lupus too, or I have this other illness and I haven't told anyone because I'm afraid I won't get through nursing school or I won't get a job. Um, and so I've been able to, you know, provide some support for those students. But also I think that they, they appreciate hearing it. And I think that they seek out more information. And often I hear students say, thank you so much for being vulnerable and human with us because we're human too. And we feel like we've got to be perfect all the time, which I think is a thing in nursing. Yeah. You know, you feel like you have to be perfect all of the time. Um, you know, administration has been supportive. They haven't said anything, but other faculty um, I think there are some faculty, not where I am now, but where I've been previously, who feel like I shouldn't be disclosing anything, that I need to keep a very, you know, clear line and be boundaries between me and the students. And that's just not my philosophy. I don't, you know, I'm not into hierarchy. I'm not any more important than the students in my class. We're all human beings. Um, so I just, you know, I work past that. But I think there are some faculty who would prefer that I didn't share. And certainly yeah. there are some who would prefer that I didn't, you know, weave so much social justice into my teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was laughing at it when you said that some students complain that you're too left-leaning. And it, it makes me, I have such compassion for people who would be labeled right-leaning who also care about people. And I think it's funny that if you care about people and you want to change systems so that more people have access and better health, you're left-leaning that it's become so political to care about fellow humans. And I think it's, it's another one of the barriers that we have to soften and shift away from. Yeah, I agree. I think the divide has gotten much worse in the last five years um, than what I had seen before. I think in the past, 
I've lost friends in the last five years, people who I really cared about, you know, other nurses who I think are, I still think are good human beings, but you know, the politics, political, politics and the other issues that we're seeing have created such a divide. And I think with COVID too, you know, and social media where you're able to peer into other people's lives, like you, you all learned about me from social media and my disclosures there. But I think we're able to peer into each other's lives more. And that makes it more challenging too, because then you see things about people that you might not have known at the water cooler. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, I, I am sure that as in massage therapy curriculum, there's a very sort of like, we have to cover these things. But I think about, I at Healwell, we teach very much the way you described, that there's there's sort of no point in being an expert if you're not, first and foremost, a person. And that students actually respond to that better. And, and then you have clinicians who are better able to connect with patients, which, I mean, the, the research is clear that if two of us give the same treatment, but one of us appears to clearly care, that person will do better. <laughs> and I wonder about sort of um, how, you know, people say, well, we don't have time to teach compassion or to be present at the bedside or any number of points of resistance. And I feel like we've had a, a number of guests um, throughout the show talk with us about other people's discomfort and that when you're sharing it's more about those other people saying, oh gosh, like if you're sharing like that, does that mean I have to share like that? And could you please stop? And, <laughs> and just the amount of, I guess, patience and compassion it takes to not, to not say to people, this is about you. You're in a shell. You're missing everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. It is hard. And, you know, I think especially in nursing, if we're not teaching caring, if we're not there about caring, if that's not a core construct for us, then why bother, right? Yeah. You know, you could train anybody how to do technical skills. You can give anybody education about diseases, but it's being able to pull all that together and see the human being in front of you and care about the human being and accompany them through their healing journey. That is really the important part of nursing. And I think sometimes we miss that. And I, I also think, you know, nurses it, right now, um, as you mentioned, Nurse Kelsey, I also recently posted about how there's not a scarcity of nurses. They they always do this, um, you know, nursing shortage. When, when you look at the numbers right now, we don't have a nursing shortage. We have a shortage of nurses who are willing to work in acute care, particularly right now with COVID patients, where for the last year and a half, they've been disrespected, not provided PPE, had poor staffing, unsafe conditions. And they're tired, as I would be if I was still doing that work and deciding to work elsewhere. Um, And I I think that that's an important point with disability. We see nurses as they get older or they develop chronic diseases, leaving acute care, um, leaving direct care positions. And if we, if leadership and nursing in general embraced how to utilize nurses who may not be able to do all of the same essential functions that they could before, we'd have such an opportunity because right now we have new graduate nurses who are have six months experience who are in charge on units teaching other nurses. That is so unfair to yeah. those nurses um, and to the patients. But if, and it's not just, you know, chronic illness, as nurses get older, 
it's harder to do the hard work at the bedside for long, prolonged hours. You know, there's an opportunity to have somebody who has a lot of experience there for four hours or eight hours mentoring and supporting those new nurses. So I think, you know, there's really a need for a shift in the way that we look at nursing, that we look at healthcare, and um, and that we look at the value of people and what it is that they can contribute. Yeah, well, that leads right into, I mean, I wonder if you would say more about um, if you were going to define ableism, how would you define it? And and can you talk some more about how that figures into the ways that we manage nurses and manage how we care for people and, and just how insidious it is? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, ableism in nursing, I find that nurses... I work with nurses sometimes who are incredibly gifted in caring with patients, but unkind and unforgiving with their colleagues, right? Expecting them to be perfect. So for me, ableism is is discrimination, making judgments, um, you know, having bias towards people who have a disability. Mm -hmm. And, And that can come in a lot of different forms. Oftentimes people, or at least, you know, I can speak from my experience in nursing primarily, but oftentimes I think people are not trying to overtly discriminate or don't even think that they're discriminating. Um, But one of the things that I experience all the time, not so much where I am now, I recently changed jobs and I I have a a job that I really love and where I feel supported. But um, in my experience before, the microaggressions were awful. Yeah. You know, people who would say, oh, yeah, we, we care about you. It's great. And then you hear them in the hallway talking about, oh, Anna's sick again. I don't know if Anna's going to be able to do that. And and things like, you know, having somebody come to me with the schedule and go, you know, I noticed that you're sicker on Mondays because I take a monoclonal antibody in the, on the weekends. I think I'm going to change your schedule so you don't work on Mondays. And me having to say, I'm a grown woman. Yeah. Right. I'm a grown adult human being here. Yeah. I don't need you deciding what my schedule is or what will be best for me, which is one of the reasons why I I hit my illness. I pretended to be well for so very long because, you know, I don't want people deciding, oh, you know, let's not ask Anna if she wants to be on this committee or if she wants to do this. Let's not tell her about this promotion because I think it'll be too much for her. Um, so there's a lot of that. And and sometimes that's, you know, approach from a caregiving mindset, but it's very paternalistic. Um, yeah. And also, you know, the unkindness. Nurses are this way to themselves, too. I have to say all the time, would you treat your patient this way? Yeah, absolutely. Hello, podcast listeners. Just a brief, brief pause to tell you about HealWell's upcoming Social Justice in Healthcare Conference. Just Care Social Justice in Healthcare is a two-day virtual conference that will take place October 9th and 10th of this year. We have a great lineup of really interesting folks who are going to talk about many aspects of social justice in healthcare. The conference has been approved for eight hours of continuing education credit for multiple healthcare professions. So um, you can you can get continuing healthcare credit and hear from people about topics like 
health and incarceration, to creative solutions to healthcare accessibility, uh, about weight bias in healthcare, about uh, healthcare and disabilities, all kinds of excellent topics in this conference. If you're unable to attend in, in real time, you will have access to the recordings for up to a year after the conference is over, so don't let that stop you. And in addition to the two days of quality content and amazing discussions, your conference fee includes a one-year membership to HealWell's online interdisciplinary community, so you can continue these conversations and even start new ones. Um, so we hope you'll check that out. That's Just Care, Social Justice in Healthcare, HealWell's two-day virtual conference, and the link will be in the show notes. Thanks. Yeah. So in a, in a situation, because I think, you know, we at Healwell, we're constantly looking at how to be more reasonable in our scheduling and sort of, I mean, the way that we work is, is quite a bit different from the way that like nurses are scheduled, but we have a couple people on our staff who live with various things. Like, I mean, in particular, we've got folks with like migraines or chronic injuries where when they are feeling well, they really want to work as much as they can. And they feel unduly terrible when they can't fully show up because they have to go lie down in a dark room. And we want people to take care of themselves and to know that they're a valuable member of the team and we are as excited for them to come back when they feel well for us as we are for them. And that, you know, I think we have to get really creative and this is where, you know, we come back to sort of white supremacy and the structures of how work has been designed in the United States and how to say like, so maybe we have two people do this job and this one person is more like a deputy and they do some other stuff. But if this other person needs to take care of themselves, not when this other person is sick, when this other person can't do it, but when this other person needs to focus on their personal health in a way that lets them continue to have a life and also be valuable to this team, this other person comes in and it's not because this other person is stronger or better or quote healthier this is how we've structured it because people are like this. This is our bodies are not designed to be perfect and to work well all the time. I, I love that you take that approach, that accepting and supportive approach. And I think even if people change the way they refer to things like you just did, instead of saying when they're sick, when they need to take care of themselves, when there are things they need to do to promote their own wellness, I think that shift alone would be tremendous um, because there, there is a lot of judgment. I will tell you when I have to call in sick or I have to cancel an appointment or, you know, I have to cancel some kind of commitment like this podcast, it is horrifying for me. I am so embarrassed. I feel guilty. I feel so stressed wow. out. Often I feel inadequate because of, you know, the microaggressions I've gotten for so many years saying that to me and simply simply saying, oh, that's okay, Anna, I understand, we'll work around it, 
go take care of yourself takes a lot of that weight off me. But you'll be surprised how often I don't get that, yeah. right? Where I get, wow, that's really a bummer. This is going to mess up my day or this is going to mess up my plans. <laughs> like uh, I already know I'm messing up your plans. I knew that when I had to make the decision to cancel this, that I was going to be messing up your plans. I don't need a reminder of that. Yeah. I'm already feeling bad enough. And I often have to say to people, nobody feels worse about this than me. Yeah. You know, yeah. the fact that I, I am in too much pain to climb out of my bed today um, or I would have done it. Nobody feels worse about the situation than I do. And I think some of this in nursing, um, you brought up white supremacy. And I appreciate that because, you know, we nursing kind of attributes nursing to Florence Nightingale as the mother of nursing. <laughs> and um, and that harks back to the Victorian era, right, of of um, being prim and proper and, um, you know, acceptability of how you dress and what you do. And we've weaved this concept of professionalism through nursing, which is really founded in a, a very um, narrowly defined image of what a nurse can and should look like, which continues to be a significant problem with us for diversity yeah. um, because nurses have bought into that. And I also think as a part of that, you know, if you read Nightingale's writing, she was like, had no kindness for other nurses. It was this way and that is it. And I think we've kind of perpetuated that where it's like, Anna's not Anna's not worthy of being a nurse or yeah. so-and-so is not worthy of being a nurse because she can't do this one thing or because she's got these limitations, even though I've got all these other strengths that I bring to nursing. And I see that with nursing students too. I used to be the associate dean of a nursing program. And when I really started to become more vocal about disability, I brought to the table that we needed to change our disability policies. Um, because historically, nursing has like a physical that you have to do. And it would say things like able to lift 75 pounds or able to lift 50 pounds, able to do this, this and this. And really what we have to do is be able to get the work done. Right. So I don't have to be able to lift 50 pounds. I need to be able to assist with mobility. And yes. maybe I can use a lift for that or I can use a team or whatever. So we had some interesting discussions and, uh, you know, things would come up like with a, a student who was. Uh, was deaf, the, the faculty would say things like, well, how are they going to hear lung sounds? How are they going to hear alarms? We can't admit them to nursing school. And my answer is always, who says they have to? Right? Why, right. why do we say that they have to do that to be able to be a nurse? Um, you know, there are other ways for that work to be done. And there are other ways for them to contribute, which was helpful. I think it shifted for some of them. You know, a year later, we graduated a nurse who was completely deaf who was a brilliant nurse, did a fabulous job, was able to do everything that uh, she needed to do with accommodations. So a part of this is kind of reimagining and pushing back some of that old Nightingale stuff. Um, and also I think acknowledging that Nightingale was racist and, you know, was a colonizer and, and, and understanding how that's affected nursing and things like ableism and starting to reckon with that and move forward will, I think, make a big difference in terms of how we accept people and how we um, bring diversity into nursing and then actually can do something about health equity. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, and I, I think about you bringing, you know, changing, shifting policies. And I mean, you know, that culture eats policy for lunch and that, you know, the policy didn't get changed because nobody else cared about it. And so the work that you have to do when you create a new policy, and it sounds like you guys did some of that in having those uncomfortable conversations. We had a, a guest a few weeks ago who uh, it lives with cerebral palsy and he's in a wheelchair and he was talking about, you know, we asked him, how do we, what can we tell able-bodied people to bring disability more into their awareness and to just like embrace it as something that we all need to support and figure out how to work with. And he said, you know, I wish that we could get people who are currently able-bodied to think of themselves on a continuum and to really talk about, I'm not disabled today. I'm not disabled right now, but that most of us as our lives progress, will be living with some degree of disability. And I think about so many of the young nurses that we see in our work, particularly in the ICU and in the units where there's a lot of sort of more physical work, people are, are supporting ongoing chronic injury and or illness because they don't want to speak up and say like, I can't do this by myself or, you know, they're trying to sort of prove themselves in this really poorly constructed system that is not about care providers taking care of themselves. I agree completely. I um, I have spent a good portion of my career trying to prove myself, right? And I think <sighs> I do that even more now. And I think that's sort of an, a customary element of nursing that we have to address, right? Instead of supporting and nurturing new nurses that come in, it's kind of a, like throw them in the fire and let them prove that they deserve to be here. And then we ingrain that into them. And, and we do it in nursing school too, unfortunately. I mean, I, I'm not doing it, but... Um, I, I have participated in the past before I learned and understood more. So I think, you know, we, we set this expectation and, and we don't talk about the fact that anything can change, right? I didn't, I didn't expect to get diagnosed with lupus. And so I think people don't see themselves on the continuum. And I also think that nurses sort of feel like, oh, well, if I get to that point, I just won't be able to work anymore. And that's really a shame. You know, I could medically retire if I wanted to now. I could stop working, but I still have a lot to contribute, I still have a lot that I want to say. I like working. I like doing nursing care. Um, so, you know, why should it be kind of this or that, that, you know, either I can do it all or I can do nothing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the I'm curious about, you mentioned something very early and it it might seem tangential, but that's the beauty of intersectionality, right? Is that there are no tangents because <laughs> they all come back around to the same things that we have to undo, but that you were misdiagnosed for five years because physicians were just saying, yep, yeah, you know, lose some weight and then come talk to me. And I think that's incredibly common. And another sort of, um, it, it's sort of like the, the last sanctioned discrimination that like judging people because of the size of their body and, laying disease at the feet of overweightness, as it is often called, um, is standard care. And this idea that when you go, uh, my partner had a tick bite a few months ago, and she went in and um, we have we've actually been in our private interdisciplinary online community, we uh, just like a month before she went in, our whole topic had been about weight bias. And so a couple of the advocates in there said, you know, one of the things you can do is, is say, I don't want to be weighed when I show up for my appointment, because weight is not a vital sign. But she was so worried about the tick bite, she forgot. And so they weighed her. 
and the provider gave her a lecture about BMI before she even like talked about the tick bite at all. And, you know, my partner just felt like, I don't even, I don't even know what to do with this because I'm actually really worried that I might be like harboring a disease right now. And you're, you know, looking at this random number out of context and judging the state of my health based on this. And it's okay to do that. And I mean, providers are taught like this is a really important number and we need to lecture patients when they come in and tell them, you know, quit it. I know I, I just a friend of mine, I think it was yesterday or this week, a friend of mine posted on Twitter asking, why do I have to do a wait first thing when I get to the doctor's office? And I was thinking about that, that that is the first thing they do. They take you to the scale and weigh you. Even if I was just seen three days ago, they take me to the scale and weigh me. Um, And there have been times where I've declined, but they, you get a lot of pushback when you decline. Oh, we have to have it because medicines. Well, the truth is with adults, most medicines are not weight based. Um, right. And right. If, that's, if that's truly the need, we could weigh me later. But it really is this huge focus on fat phobia and, and you know, being overweight as the cause of all illness, which is not true. My being overweight has nothing to do with lupus. In fact, part of why I'm overweight is the medicines that I take um, with lupus. So it, it's really interesting that that's the way that we're trained to focus so much on weight. And we miss that opportunity to connect with the patient right from the start, right? To look them in the eye, to to ask them what their primary concern is and to respond to that primary concern. And then you can throw in things like, oh, I see that you smoke. You know, I want to share this with you about that. Or I see that your weight is, you know, this. Has anybody talked to you about that? Yeah. Do do you want to talk about how to reduce your weight? Because there are some people like me, in order for me to lose weight, I have to eat less than a thousand calories a day because I just can't I can't do it with prednisone. So you telling me that I'm fat does not help me. I already, I have a mirror. So I know what it is that I look like. I don't need that additional information. Um, But it is such a focus. And, you know, for five years, I heard that I was fat. And of course, I was in too much pain and too exhausted to, to be able to exercise. They're telling me to exercise more. But I ended up having to fire a physician because, and this was kind of the last straw for me, and I'm glad it happened. But I came in crying. Here I am, like 32 years old, said there's something seriously wrong with me. I can't hardly get out of bed. I am so exhausted. I can't walk down the stairs. I can't go to the, I can't play with my granddaughter. I mean, my daughter, my kids. I can't do the things that I need to be able to do. And she looked at me and she said, well, if I were carrying around a 50 pound um, bag of dog food, I would be tired too. Wow. And I was so stunned. You know, I'm, I'm a nurse at this point that my mouth just dropped open. I started crying and I, I'm not a quiet person. I speak up for myself, but I literally couldn't say anything. I was just so stunned Uh, that she would correlate what I was experiencing to her carrying around a 50 pound bag of dog food. Um, So I fired her and the, and the organization that I was insured through. And while I, you know, because I didn't have open enrollment, I paid out of pocket to see another doctor who actually ordered tests for me and found that I had lupus and diagnosed me because that doctor did not weigh me. Um, sat in a room with me for an hour and asked me all the things I was experiencing. Yeah. And believed you. 
And believe me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, you alluded to this a little bit early, um, earlier on in terms of people not doing these things intentionally. And I, I feel like I'm sure people are tired of hearing me say that it boils down to discomfort, but I think that providers are poorly trained to be with suffering. And when you have a person who comes with something that is all symptoms and no signs, and it really is just your ability to believe that this person's suffering is real, that's what allows you to be a good clinician. But if you believe their suffering is real and you don't know what to do about it, there's sort of a default to deny it instead of getting curious and being like, listen, I'm not exactly sure what to do, but I believe you and we're going to figure this out. And I just think if physicians and other providers could recognize in themselves the very human desire to move out of discomfort and to have an answer, care would improve exponentially. <laughs> I, I agree, you know, and, and, and this is not to pick on physicians because I also mm -hmm. have some phenomenal physicians, right? So yeah. the physician that I paid out of pocket really listened to me and did just that, said, I'm not sure what's going on, could be these things, but... I'm really sorry this is happening to you. And there's a lot of power in just saying that. I'm really sorry this happened to you. I'm yeah. really sorry you're experiencing this. It acknowledges yeah. the suffering. So yeah. so the person feels like, oh, okay, wait, they're they're hearing me. My my rheumatologist, the first time I met him, because I've been through so much with the, those years of not getting diagnosed, that I had like the whole list. I had the rheumatology criteria for lupus. I, you know, I had a positive double strand DNA. I had all of that. I was, and I started, you know, trying to explain everything I'd been through. Um, and he said to me, and are you trying to convince me you have lupus? And I said, yes, I've yeah. been trying to say, I've been saying this for a long time. He said, oh, I know you have lupus. You don't have to explain it to me. I believe you. And I broke down crying because it was just like having somebody say, I believe you that you are actually experiencing all these horrible things Yeah, was so incredible. And then, you know, he's, he's really gifted, I think, in being with people in their discomfort. And I'm so grateful to have him. But, um, you know, I later came back one time in a flare where I was really sick, but my labs all looked good. And there are times when I feel great and my labs look awful. And I said <laughs> to him, and I was afraid, like, he's not going to believe me because the labs all look good. And, and I was telling him how I felt and he was being very responsive to it and supportive. And I said, you know, I feel crazy telling you this is how I feel when I know all my labs are good. He said, you know, we just don't have good biomarkers. The fact that your labs are good, that's great. It shows me that your organs are functioning okay, but yeah. it doesn't mean that you're not experiencing these things. Ugh. And I I know, right? Like yeah, yeah. If, I Priceless. Could, if I move six hours away, I'm going to continue to see Truly. this doctor because I always feel really heard with him. And I think that that's something that we need to do. I remember as a, a nursing student being trained how to know if a patient was lying. Um, particularly around pain, how wow. to make a decision about whether or not they were really in pain or whether they were faking in pain. Uh, and, you know, even with seizures too, you know, how to know if they're faking a seizure or they're actually having a seizure. And to me now it's appalling to think that, that 
I would be taught that way. But I see it all the time. You know, you'll see it in nursing diet and nursing charting. Patient states paying 10 out of 10, but playing on their phone or right. looks fine when I'm not in the room. Well, I, I'm here to tell you, there are times when I'm in so much pain, I can barely move. And the only thing that keeps me from crawling out of my skin is looking at my phone yeah. or being distracted in some kind of way. Yes. So just because I look okay, doesn't mean that I am okay. Absolutely. In our implicit bias course, we refer uh, to a number of studies that are mentioned in this book called How Emotions Are Made. And in the book, she talks about how wrong we are about understanding emotions and how they're expressed. And I think the particular example that sticks with me is the uh, the video and the still photos of the Boston bomber when he received his, uh, when he was actually in court and also when he received a sentencing and that, you know, Americans perceived his stone face as he didn't care and he wasn't affected by the, and she talked about the cultural implications of emotion and how it's expressed and that, you know, we can't actually know. The only thing we can do is be present to someone and, you know, use our intuitive sense and pay attention. And, and I think the, the question we don't ask is, what happens if I'm, quote, getting duped here? You know, like if this person tells me they're in pain and they're not in pain, what's like the worst possible scenario of me to just, for me to just believe this person? And, you know, people go, oh, well, opioid addiction. Okay, but you're, you're going pretty far down the road. Like for the next 24 hours, what happens if I just believe this person? <laughs> Right. What, what happens that you, you treat somebody for something that they didn't necessarily need to be treated for, but the opposite is that you allow somebody to suffer and you don't treat them for something that they genuinely need to be treated for. And, you know, I remember part of what I was taught is you can tell from vital signs, you know, the heart rate will go up and blood pressure will go up. And um, if that's not happening, then they're really probably not in pain. Well, that may have some validity for some people who are in acute pain, but if they're on a beta blocker, for example, they're not necessarily going to have those kind of experiences. But for people who are in chronic pain, I can be in really significant pain. Yes. And you have no idea. I can fake well. You're a mad you. coper. Uh, that's right. Because <laughs> I have to do that all the time. I got to show up for a class where maybe I'm in pain eight out of 10 and smile and look like I'm okay. And I can assure you that my blood pressure and my heart rate are not going up because my body is used to being in pain all the time. Yeah. So, you know, I think we get, we get these bias training. I certainly got some bias training in nursing school and then we get more bias on the, on the, you know, in the nursing units and as we're experiencing being a nurse and learning from other nurses. So, you know, I think part of ableism, too, is not believing people's experiences, right? Absolutely. And there's part of it is being paternalistic and deciding what they can and can't do. But part of it is just not believing them. I've had people um, who at work at a job I'm no longer at, but I had a supervisor. I called him sick the next day. I was really sick with the flare and said, well, that's interesting that you're sick today because yesterday you looked just fine. And, um, you know, and that's the reality with lupus. I can feel fine today and tomorrow I can't get out of bed. And you would think that that people with healthcare experience understand that. But yeah. And, and then what is the message that I'm getting there? Right. The message is I don't believe you. You're a liar and you're not a team player. Right. right? At, at the same time that I'm also laying there in tears because once again, I'm stuck in bed. 
Right. And I, you know, I often think like those people who shoot those microaggressions and sometimes macroaggressions at me or at other people who um, have disabilities, if, if they even think about like, let's imagine that what I'm saying is true, right? right? That I am really sick and I really can't get out of bed. And so not only are you not believing me, but you're showing me no empathy at all for this really significant experience that I'm having. Um, And I think people just kind of disconnect from that. What I find with disability, especially in nursing, is people think about how your illness affects them. Right. Instead of how your illness or your disability affects you, it's what does it mean for me? How is it affecting me? I have to shift my schedule. I have to do something different. Whereas if we approached it and reimagined the way we work with each other, like you have talked about um, with, you know, making accommodations or changes so that somebody can be well or do those things. If we imagined it differently, we could everything could change, right? If we just imagined a different way of being and of accepting other people and taking them for what it is that they're able to contribute. People who are disabled know what they can do. They will self-select. If you ask somebody, what can you do? What can I, what can we do to make sure that you're able to do this job? Are there accommodations that can be made? We know exactly what it is we need. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to go back to when you were talking about the, um, the nurse manager or whoever it was who said, hey, I'm going to just not schedule you because it seems like these are your sick days. And I think that this is another place where being able to have what we in the present paradigm call difficult conversations, but what I hope in the future we call real conversations. If that person had come to you and said, hey, can, we, can you take a minute with me? Let's talk about your schedule. And said like, so I bet it's really hard for you to miss days when you're scheduled and whatever. And I'm noticing that Mondays seem to be a not great day. I don't want to just not schedule you on Mondays because it looks like that, but I know you want to be a valuable part of the team. So let's like, let's come up with a good solution so that, you know, I can have my shift, I can have my schedule covered, but you also can contribute in the way you want to contribute. It's not that we pretend this isn't happening and this person either just keeps scheduling you the same or changes your schedule without asking. It's actually about being able to say, neither of us likes this dynamic. How do we make it suck less? And Uh, yeah, the first scenario where they came to me and said, I'm just going to schedule you. That's actually against the law. Yeah. So that's a violation (laughs) of ADA. And I had to respond in that way. Do you you Uh, understand that when you decide to treat me differently, because you're not in anybody else's office telling them what days you're not going to schedule them, when you decide to treat me differently, that is a violation of my rights. Whereas having the same conversation in a different way as you just shared, it would be perceived by me as an accommodation and collaboration, right? If they had come and said, you know, I'm noticing this, like you said, it must be really hard. What can we do with your schedule that would help you? Is there anything that we could do that would allow you to be able to fully participate in the way that you feel like you need to participate? Um, I I want to support you. That would have been received completely differently by me because then I would look at it going, oh, they care about me. They see me. Yeah, they're hearing me. And yes, let's sit down and talk and look at the schedule and see what be, would be best. I appreciate you thinking about me versus the, the response that they got, which was 
that's against the law. Right. Right. Because you don't want to go there. You don't want to no. come from a punitive perspective, but yeah, you feel attacked and unseen and yeah. Right. Let's just really talk about what you just put on the table. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, and I think, so then a manager says, oh, well, if you have a special schedule, then other people are going to ask me about a special schedule. Well, great. Have those other people ask. Who else is unhappy and unable to actually meet the demands? <laughs> and how can we just make everyone have a better life because we actually take everyone's specific, you know, concerns into account? And I mean, you can't have some person work two hours and some person work six hours, but like, here's maybe the three ways you can work in this unit. And we figure out how to put these puzzle pieces together. But I mean, the thing that baffles me is our commitment to a system that clearly doesn't work. <laughs> like, why are we so adamant and, and willing to defend this clearly broken situation? I, I know. And, and we look at the clearly broken system processes and we go, okay, this is not working. And then we try to like make these little fixes in it, right? That yep. are like putting band-aids on. Yes. You know, like for instance, as, as an analogy, I work with a place that has a really difficult EHR system. Mm -hmm. And for years they've done all of these little fixes to it instead of just getting a system that works. And I think that that's part of the problem that we see in healthcare, not just in nursing, is that we know we've got these major issues and we were, you know, individually working on these little fixes instead of stopping and going, well, this is not working. Let's reimagine the whole thing. Let's let's really let's pretend we don't have it and start from the beginning. And what would this look like? And that's you know, that's not original idea for me. Um, that whole idea of making it different and um, and reimagining. Uh, I have certainly learned a lot from Dr. Monica McLemore about. Uh, but, you know, really, why can't we just reimagine it? Why can't we say this is not working? What would work It's you know, especially right now where we are not having beds to care for people who are critically ill because yes. you cannot get nurses to come and staff them. If that is not enough for you in, in a pandemic where I can assure you, I don't know any nurses who don't care about supporting uh -huh. their, you know, their fellow human beings through this. If that's not a huge wake up call that we have to do it different, I don't know what is. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, I was going to ask you to sort of drop the mic and tell us like one more thing we should know, but you sort of just did it. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners are thinking about or resources you want to point them to? You know, I think the thing that I would say is that we often feel uncomfortable, as you shared, when people share their suffering, if people tell you they're disabled or they have problems. I think just being kind and saying, if you don't understand, I think sometimes people don't say anything because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. So, you know, you can always say, I'm sorry, that's happening to you. I'm here for you. I support you. But, but I think one of the things I really would want listeners to hear is, don't make somebody else's disability about you, right? That it's their disability. Don't make it about you and how it affects you. Remember that you need to center the person who's having the experience and not center yourself, which I think is a problem that we see in healthcare all the time. Absolutely. That I wish we actually saw. <laughs> yes. It's certainly something that takes place. <laughs> if we start seeing it, we might be able to change it. Yes. 
Oh, well, thank you so much for everything that you are doing out there with nurses and in the world. And thank you for uh, the generous gift of your time with us today. We will definitely be in touch with you and hope we can get into some good trouble together. I would love that. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Interdisciplinary Heal Well's podcast about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. Uh, remember our season three contest, leave us a review. And if we read it, you will cash in and get out there on social media and like us and share us and tell your parents and your pets and everybody else that you're listening and tell them they should listen to. Thanks. See you next week. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.